Welcome back to A Farther Room. About a month ago, I finished rereading one of the most impactful works of fiction in the 20th century. That work is 1984 by George Orwell. It's one of my favorite books, honestly. And um, I've read it before, but it had just been a while. And so I went back and reread it. I highly recommend it if you have not read it. I will not include spoilers in this episode. So if you're. So if you hadn't read it, you're safe to listen to this. It's a genius, genius book. It's very memorable. Some of its characters and themes and kind of phraseology are widely quoted and circulated in today's culture. For example, Big Brother. If you've heard that term, Big Brother is watching. It's from 1984. That's just one of many that you'd probably recognize. It's very raw and honest. It's very beautiful in some parts. And it's just brutal and very harsh in others. Allow me to quickly describe what I like best about Orwell's writing style. And then... I want to discuss one aspect of the book is really like a scene that stuck out to me this time I was reading it and I feel like relates well to today's environment. <clears throat> when you read George Orwell, his language is not flashy, but is extremely effective. Some classic authors you have to Google a word every now and then to see what is being said. Or you have a hard time following the train of thought as the text kind of unfolds. Some authors like Melville or Hugo will go down a 20-page rabbit hole describing something and kind of lose you. Orwell isn't like any of that. His language is similar to the material in his books. It's straightforward, brutally honest, and approachable. He doesn't use overly lofty terminology, and he doesn't try to wow you with oddball vocabulary. But when he describes something, he creates the most vivid images in your mind. His thought processes are extremely complex. He thinks about things from every possible angle, and that's really reflected in his writing. When you read his work, you are in his world entirely, a world he has created and meticulously spells out for you. There's an event in his book called The Two Minutes Hate. A very, very quick background for you on that. Again, no spoilers. This book was written in the late 1940s. So it was set roughly 
35 years in the future. The main character lives in a place called Oceana. That region of the world is ruled by a tyrannical governing body called the Party. The Party controls every aspect of the lives of people who live there. They do this to keep power for themselves and prevent people from rising up against them. Manipulation of people's thought processes is one key way they achieve this in the book. Every day, everybody who is a member of the outer party, who are basically the worker bees of the party, stop what they're doing and participate in the two minutes hate. Everybody goes into a room and is shown a video. The video is of the political enemy of the party. Emmanuel Goldstein. While he is talking, there are images superimposed over him of war and enemy soldiers approaching. He's portrayed in a very ominous way and is made to look like he is the root cause of everything wrong in the world, basically. The effect is to whip up a frenzy among those people who are watching. The people in attendance yell and get louder and louder as the video goes along. They scream and shout and sometimes throw things at the screen. They're in this stage of pure hatred. And it's a unified hatred of every, everybody in the room toward this guy on the screen. People do this day after day, week after week, month after month. Eventually, people are conditioned to hate this man and even become uncomfortable at the mention of his name. Now, some people probably already know where I'm going with this. But when I was reading this part of the book, I could not help but say to myself, that is strikingly similar to some aspects of our lives today. Even though this is a work of fiction, and even though this doesn't actually happen, it feels very familiar. I immediately think of the media. In today's United States, it's very, very difficult to find good information. Information on current events, material that informs but does not seek to indoctrinate. The media, in my opinion, some way, in some ways represent the party of 1984. They control the flow of information and there are valves and limitations put on that flow. This is absolutely the case. Big tech companies are complicit in this as well. 
the way they filter search results and manipulate what you see in your feeds on social media. We receive packaged information that's designed to make us think a certain way. We just do. And in some respects, there is a socially acceptable list of viewpoints. There are certain hot-button issues that are basically off-limits to debate. One side of the argument is championed, while the other side is effectively stamped out. What happens to you in today's society if you take the position that is not the accepted one? Let's say you are against people kneeling during the national anthem. I don't want to get into that issue today. I'm, that's not why I bring it up. I'm just using it as an example. Let's say you put out a post on social media talking about how you think people who kneel for the anthem are misguided. You think they're wrong to do it. Blah, blah, blah. What happens to people who make points like that? What if somebody who worked for a major network like ESPN made a critical remark about players kneeling before the game? What are the odds that person would be fired? Better than 50-50? At least 50-50? I'd say probably 60-40, they're fired. People who make a point that is in any way seen as contrary to the popular groupthink, those people are punished. They're interrupted on live television. They're sometimes shouted down. I just watched a clip from The View recently, they had a black conservative woman on who is running for public office in Baltimore. I can't remember her name. By the end of the episode, almost all of the show hosts were talking her down and wouldn't even let her get a word out. She had committed the sin of saying, She didn't think Donald Trump was a racist. If you are a public speaker and you have the wrong set of views, people will get you banned from speaking. If you're not banned, they'll show up and shout you down with megaphones and play loud noises while you're trying to speak. We've seen this happen all too often in the past 10 years, especially the last five. I have seen it over and over and over in videos that I've watched. So how does this relate to 1984? The people in the book who are members of the party are coerced by their government into having certain views. They live in fear of committing what Orwell refers to as thought crime 
if you're seen as to be as somebody who may rebel against the party, the thought police will come in the night and take you from your bed, and you're never seen again. Threats to their authority cannot be tolerated. There's no freedom to have a unique set of opinions or a unique worldview, and there's absolutely no room for criticism. Now, are there people today in the United States being dragged from their homes in the middle of the night for having the wrong views? No, obviously not. I'm not trying to make a case that we live in an extreme society like that. That doesn't mean, however, that you can't draw comparisons and recognize similarities when you see them. You can feel sometimes in our society that there are certain permitted views and there are certain prohibited views. It's nearly undeniable. Or maybe it's better to say you have to be in denial to not see it. It's palpable in our discourse. The news media and tech companies hold an enormous amount of power. They control the flow of, it, of information. And when 80% of them all think the same way and ask the same questions and make the same points over and over and over, as a member of the public, it feels much like being a rat in their cage. They do what they can to condition the public to look on certain people and certain ideas with disdain. Imagine this. Imagine I am a trained emergency room physician with decades of experience. Imagine I do a lot of COVID-19 data collection on patients in my local health system. And I come to a conclusion that it's time to end a state lockdown. I look at the positives we've collected versus total number of people versus deaths. And I decide to pair that with what I decide to pair what I've gathered against data found in other parts of the country and other societal issues like people being out of work, depressed, etc., etc. So I decide to do a press conference and talk about it. Say, hey, this virus it is not fake news. But it appears, after looking at this for months, that it doesn't constitute a lockdown. It doesn't constitute quarantining healthy people. Well, we don't have to imagine that. Somebody actually did that. There were two physicians in California that did a local press conference for their community in April saying those things. Doctors Erickson and Masihi were their names. 
they were absolutely raked over the coals for doing that. People came out of the woodwork to debunk them, quote-unquote, labeling them hacks who don't know what they're talking about. YouTube deleted the video. Think about that. YouTube deleted it. If you hear all that and you haven't seen it, you may think, wow, they must be pretty big supervillains, right? Well, I went and watched that video not too long ago. I hadn't seen it before. I had heard about it, but I wanted to see what all the fuss was about. They didn't come off as crazy or lacking knowledge at all. They came across very measured and not at all dogmatic in what they were saying. And you can watch it and disagree with some of their conclusions, which people are absolutely free to do. I'm not against people disagreeing with them at all. What is kind of creepy to me is this ministry of truth reaction we had to it. In 1984, one branch of the party government that sets all the records the way they want them and controls the flow of info is the Ministry of Truth. Plenty of people can argue they don't agree with some of their conclusions. Nobody with a brain can argue that their video should be deleted. I'm sorry, that's just indefensible. People who live in a free society should be offended when companies like Google are trying to control what you can watch. If you search their names on YouTube today, you can't find the original video, even months later. It was was recorded in April, I think. It may be there buried down on page 20 of the results. Guess what the top search result is? What Daniel Erickson and Artin Massini get wrong about coronavirus. And that summarizes basically the top 10 other search results you'll see also. They don't want you to see their original video. They want you to see a video from the Washington Post that's narrated by some 20-year-old who's reading off her script about how they've been debunked. We're being conditioned to think a certain way. I want you to really think about that. The two minutes hate showed two physicians on the screen who were really just trying to present a lot of data they had collected and draw a conclusion from it. The crowd reacted the same way they do in the book. Collective rage. But it's not just those doctors. The next week it was somebody different, probably with a similar opinion. Next week it'll be somebody different about another issue. Make no mistake about it. The smartest thing we can do right now as human beings living in the United States is question everything. No matter where it comes from, the left, the right, the 
doesn't matter. Fox News, CNN, MSNBC, question it. Get to the original source of info if you can. Don't take somebody else's word for it because all too often people are lied about. We don't live in an age of memory holes yet. In the book, a memory hole is basically a trash chute where they dispose of records they want to get rid of inside the ministry of truth. We haven't reached Orwell's 1984 yet. It's hard to argue with people when they say, this feels eerily similar to what I read in that book.